vengeance. I am the knight. I am Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board. That's creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. How are you tonight, Brother Will? I'm doing great, Brother Matt. I've got a question for you. What's the most embarrassing fart you ever had? Oh, that is a good question. I think elementary school, middle of a test and everyone's (laughs) dead silent because they're all taking (laughs) the test and then resounding like echoed oh nice nice and just like everyone looking in the direction and yeah me just continuing to scribble away on the paper like trying to not let anybody know (laughs) uh like the horse down at the racetrack who farted uh i think my most embarrassing one was uh i was having relations with uh with a lady friend totally slipped out she played it off like a champ applause to her applause absolutely so it's our 42nd episode so the answer to life the universe and everything but we're not here tonight to answer grand philosophical questions we are instead here to discuss three stories by the new writer of the flagship Batman title, as of this week, provided everything comes out on time, Chip Zdarsky, a writer who started out as an artist and who has become one of the best crime writers in comics in the past few years between Daredevil and Newburn. I am actually currently in a feud with Chip Zdarsky, so I'm, I'm engaging in this episode in protest. Oh, Do tell. Yes, uh, it's a one-sided feud because he's ignoring me, except for using my tweet for his newsletter content. I love Newburn. It's a great book. I am astounded by the fact that these guys continue to use British slash Canadian English spellings in it. And it's, it's become an obsession with me. It's the only thing I can think about as I read the book. But thankfully, friend of the show, your best friend, Dan Grote, finally cracked this nut when he says Newburn is actually a New York police drama being filmed in Vancouver. And I'm like, all right, I can fucking read and enjoy this book now. Thank you, Dan Grote. But yeah, Chip, uh, he's, he's a hilarious presence on Twitter. And uh, I love the fact that in my mind, I'm in a feud with him over an astoundingly good book with one weird idiosyncrasy. But um, yeah, I'm, I am excited for his main bat run. Although, as we talked about this in the print column, and future uses uh, will be able to read his first Batman. I'm nervous about this trailer. I'm nervous about Three Jokers, but uh, just cross my fingers. Uh, uh, my brain is currently saying... Something's going on in Batman's head, and this is just a delusion or something. I mean, for me, we've got Batman and Tim Drake as Robin as the main team in this book, and that just sells me every time. And Chip Zdarsky knows what he's doing. Damn right. Which is what we'll talk about tonight. We will. So we're going to start out with Cheer. Cheer is from Batman Urban Legends number one to six. The writer is Chip Zdarsky, art by Eddie Barrows, Eber Ferreira, and Marcus Toe, colors by Adriano Lucas, letters by Becca Carey, and edited by Ben Abernathy, Jessica Chen, and David Wilgosh. Cover dates are May to October of 2021. A new street drug, Cheerdrops, is flooding the streets of Gotham, and the hunt for its source has Batman and the Red Hood teaming up. But can they put their differences aside or will the past lead to a new tragedy? This might not be the first time, but is one of the few times that I really gave a rat's ass about Jason Todd since he came back from the dead. (laughs) And I don't blame that on the character. I blame that on the way Jason has been handled. I didn't mind him when he was sort of a villain out of 
under the hood and even in Morrison's run, he was a more interesting villain, but the semi penitent hero of the new 52 left me pretty cold and not just because problematic creator Scott Lobdell controlled Jason's destiny for most of his run, but Jason just seemed like, I don't know what, but nothing that was particularly engaging. But Zdarsky does a really good job of playing Jason with a lot of nuance in this six-part story that was the headliner of the Urban Legends anthology for its first six issues. This is a good starter story for anybody interested to learn about Jason Todd. I think this is a good one that you could just pick up. Absolutely. The structure, the moving back and forth between all these flashbacks of Jason's time as Robin and some of his stuff, even from his youth, gives you a good grounding in who he was before he became the Red Hood. But as can sometimes be the problem with that sort of recurring flashback thing, it never throws you out of the main narrative of the story. Those flashbacks make sense within the context of what is going on in the present. Now, this is the first time we've talked about urban legends here on the pod, uh, but we've talked about it in the column a couple of times when we're searching for something to write about. This reads much better as one story when you're sitting down to, to take in the whole thing and not serialized. I don't really know why DC is going with this approach. Uh, I know trying to follow this from month to month can be a little bit maddening, but the thing must still be selling because they're still pumping them out. So not my preferred sort of storytelling. I would rather see, uh, you know, instead of six issues of cheer, I would rather have three issues and it just be the whole, you know, story once per issue. But nobody asked me about these things. I love a good anthology, but I prefer an anthology something more akin to something we're going to be talking about later tonight. I like an anthology where you're getting a whole bunch of short stories, each issue, something different. I understand the recurring anthology, the 2000 AD model, so to speak, but it's something that American readers aren't used to. I am pleasantly surprised that it's still running 16 issues in. But I would generally prefer something a little more self-contained or something like traditional Legends of the Dark Knight, where, as you said, Cheer is three issues. And then we move on to the current Vita Ayala, Batman, Zatanna, Constantine story, something like that. But as as you can clearly see, this is this is kind of DC's M.O. You know, we'll let you write. Uh, something for urban legends. All right, that seems to be pretty well received. Give you a mini. And then, hey, if we need a guy, maybe we'll call you up to the big leagues. So I feel like this story gives us a really good feeling also, not just for Jason, but for how Zdarsky views Batman. And I like Zdarsky's Batman a lot. Zdarsky Batman has compassion which i think a lot of writers lose that when they're writing batman they make him the grim dark knight but this is a batman who has lollipops in the utility belt to give to kids when he confronts jason who had accidentally killed a man is probably not right because he absolutely shot this guy point blank repeatedly but they were rubber bullets, but Jason lost control and even rubber bullets at point blank range are going to kill a man. But other writers writing Batman would have had Bruce do the, you know, right down the line, we don't take lives thing. But when- we'll take you in. Yes. But when he sees the extenuating circumstances, when he sees that Jason was reacting to this guy being a really, really- sleazy piece of shit when it came to his own son whose mother had just OD'd. Bruce could see Jason seeing something of himself here and didn't 
come down on him like a ton of bricks. He actually tried to meet Jason halfway, which is not what every writer would do with Batman. No, there is a lot of nuance here. And to be fair, and to be honest, I, I liked this Batman more than I say liked the next Batman or the Batman we'll talk about later. I think he was more on point in this story than and than the other one we'll get to. But there is just a lot to like in the story. It has an emotional core. It has great use of all of these characters. You know, he can pull from history and continuity, as, as I'm sure you're, you eventually get to. Like there's a Leslie Tompkins appearance where she needs to be and her tone is right. You know, she says specifically, I'll take in this kid, but the, the, you better not be making another Robin. We're not having any of that. But there are just so many good, solid moments throughout this story. I love how, you know, we've seen Batman's greatest fear being Jason Todd dying. But his happiest delusion is Jason Todd getting satisfaction against the Joker. And Jason Todd basically loving him and being okay in their relationship. And I thought that was a really interesting point to make. I like the idea that his greatest joy is him and Jason reconciling. The Joker's death in there leaves me a little bit sour because I think so much of what Bruce is is not wanting anyone to die. But maybe that is an argument that even he views the Joker as irredeemable. But then why does he keep saving the Joker? And maybe not killing him, but also the number of times he's saved, actively saved the Joker. But I do like the ending as Bruce being able to settle down with the Bat family and have that level of peace. I like that. And then, of course, him being very, very, very angry that it's just a delusion. Yeah. That's a very, for the man who has everything moment. This is his burn when he nearly takes out Cheer, who was not a villain I would mind seeing show up again. He's an interesting counterpoint to so many of the other Batman villains who revel in terror and pain. This is a guy who just want to make you happy. He's the Matthew McConaughey of Batman villains. All right, all right, all right. And, uh, and he's an aggrieved uh, spouse who can't be happy for his partner. Yeah, oh, he's a terrible human being. And he's not someone, I would not want to be him when Mr. Freeze shows up on his doorstep either because he drugs up Freeze too. And that is not a guy who I think you want to be on the wrong side of. Oh no, oh no. When Freeze comes down from not having Nora anymore, oof, oh, he's going to be mad. Yeah, a little bit. The thing of this book that's probably the most affecting emotionally for me was Jason's interactions with Tyler. Tyler is a boy who Jason finds whose mother had OD'd on these cheer drops. This drug that I don't think we actually said it, it blisses you out. It gives, I mean, we've talked about it. We haven't said it, Pat. It's a drug that just fills you with euphoria and gives you your happiest memory, your happiest moment. And in this boy, Jason sees himself. It's really obvious that Jason is immediately seeing himself. And for a character who has often been portrayed as emotionally, maybe not quite as cold as Bruce, but emotionally damaged in a big way, he immediately tries to protect this kid. And gives the kid his mask because it calms him down he asks the kid what he wants the superhero name to be and kid says what's yours red hood can i be the blue hood jason i like blue yeah i like blue it's great and the moment when bruce shows up before jason can explain himself the two of them do of course engage in fisticuffs because it's a superhero comic and tyler getting in the way and trying to defend jason against batman Batman who scares the living shit out of big, terrifying thugs and hardened criminals. Seeing this eight-year-old 
somewhere around there, probably. I don't think they say his age, but he's not more than 10. He's probably in that eight, nine range. Stand up to Batman for Jason is a really strong moment in this book. Especially when Jason, I think so often feels like nobody else in the Bat family sticks up for him. So I'm sure that was uh, for that character, that would have been a very powerful moment. We do spend some time with Jason and Barbara. Barbara, who I think always is a little more tolerant of Jason than most of the others. And I, partially that's because Jason's never tried to kill her. And he did <laughs> in his darker times take swings at both Dick and Tim and eventually Damien too. But also I think their shared history of trauma with the Joker gives Barbara a different perspective on Jason than the others have. And that Jason feels like he's used to disappointing Bruce and he's used to resenting Dick and Tim. Dick for being better than him first and Tim for being better than him after. Better in his mind anyway. But Barbara has always been good to him and he feels bad about letting Barbara down. Yeah, you just mentioned Jason disappointing Bruce, but he has that, uh, Bruce has that nice line at the end. We both let down each other. And I think that's a perfect encapsulation of their relationship. They probably have one of the better father and son dynamics in the Bat family. I think there's always an aspect of hero worship with Tim. Damien's a brat. And Dick and Bruce, their relationship is not as complicated or more complicated, depending on who's writing it. It seems to swing wildly. But Jason and Bruce... There's something very true about this prodigal son thing that's going on there. And the fact that on some level, as angry as Bruce is at Jason for killing and for everything else, the fact that Jason is alive is something that matters so deeply to Bruce because it was something that defined him for 25-ish years of real-world time. Jason's death was as, if not more, impactful than the death of the Waynes for the 90s and the... I guess it wasn't that long, God. It was 88 to 2005, so 17 years. Feels like it was longer. But... That's, that's something that really matters to Bruce. And it isn't often talked about how much, or at least not now, how much Jason's death and his return were something that impacted Bruce's whole way of thinking. I know we'll get to the story eventually, but how did they bring him back anyway? It's complicated comic book nonsense. Of course. It involved ripples in reality, crazy fantasy stuff where I hate to say a group of characters, survivors of the original Crisis on Infinite Earths, the Superman of Earth 2, the Lois Lane of Earth 2, the Superboy of Earth Prime, and Alexander Luthor, the son of Lex Luthor of Earth 3, were outside of reality after the crisis. And to get back into reality... They had Superboy Prime basically had to keep punching the walls of reality. And every time he did, it created ripples that affected the timeline and affected what was going on. And one of these effects was Jason was brought back from the dead in his coffin. So he couldn't just do a Lazarus pit, huh? I I think as of the new 52, that's what they did. They changed it to Talia, (laughs) drop drop him in Lazarus pit. And even there in the original version, when Jason, after the ripples of reality, Jason like digs his way out of his grave and he's mentally broken. And so Talia still has to dunk him into the Lazarus pit to kind of finish healing himself from having to dig himself out of his own grave, which would be terrifying. That would be a pretty good way to fuck with Batman. Yeah. If I'm Talia. Yeah. That's something that's also been hinted at in the Young Justice cartoon. 
There's a silent member of the League of Assassins who's Talia's bodyguard, who's all in red. And it's pretty obviously Jason. They just have never revealed it as of the current episodes. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Couple of additional notes that I want to get to. I do like that when Jason says, we need to go, we need to, you know, we shake down the addicts, he'll give us the dealers, he'll give us the distributors, he'll give us the people at the top. I want to go do something. I want to get out there. A, very in character for Jason, that impatience. But also Bruce is like, no, we don't shake down the addicts. We don't shake down the victims. Again, good on Zdarsky for understanding Batman that well. And there was one other particular note I wanted to mention. And of course, oh, I like the fact that we get a technical name for the fear gas. It's Phobos Oxide, which I thought was a great name for fear toxin. Oxygen. Fear. It, it, it works. Oh, last note. There's some really good Alfred material in this. Come on, Chip. You know you want to. You know you want to bring him back. You Use can find those ripples in time. You can do it. And when Jason is sitting down with the scientist who created the original version of the fear gas, she offers him tea and he asks for it with milk and sugar. Jason so obviously learned to drink tea from a Brit. That is absolutely <laughs> Alfred's influence for how Jason takes his tea. Uh, do you have anything else, Will? I don't think so. So that means it's time to put Batman Urban Legends cheer on the big board. We have 123 stories on the big board. Number one remains Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Number 25 is Sleigh Ride from Detective Comics 826. Number 50 is the Doomsday Book from Detective Comics 572. At 69, my favorite thing, Legends of the Dark Knight, number 79, favorite things. Uh, At number 75 is Arkham Asylum, Living Hell. At number 100 is Superman, Speeding Bullets. And down at the bottom, at 123, is Batman White Knight. Ah, you suck, Sean Gordon Murphy. Stop writing. So we're we're definitely in the top half here. Yeah, yeah. I was I was thinking about that. Um, I would say top thirty. Says so again, this is a really good story. Doesn't have any speed bumps or potholes. Has a nice resolution at the end. Good character beats for so many of the people involved. No major complaints. Yeah. Don't think it quite cracks the top 20. I think we're somewhere in between 30 and 20 here. Yeah. Yeah. This is, that's a good, good spot for this. Uh, And to keep in mind, dear listeners, top 30 now is, is getting to be a real formidable place. 21 is Wonder Woman Haikatia. And 22, which is a book we really, really enjoyed, uh, Dark Knight Returns Last Crusade. So there's good stuff in here. Really good stuff. Yeah. It, this is tricky. I mean, I'm, I'm fighting my internal Tim Drake. You want to put it below Slate. You want to put it below Slate, right? Don't you? Well, the, the thing about it, and this might be a quite, this might be another one where I'm like, did we rank Blink too low? at number 27, because I really like Blink. But Blink is also a fairly simple story and is not doesn't exactly resonate through the history of Batman. So yeah, I guess it does belong about there. Yeah, it's the question of, does it beat Sleigh Ride? Sleigh Ride is a really f- strong one-issue story, but there are a couple of lines in there that don't ring terribly true for Tim. I really do think as we move forward in Batman history, this story is going to be a foundational text for Jason Todd. I can agree with that. 
So I think, you know what? I actually think this is probably our new 24. I love Lost Episode, Batman 66, the Lost Episode of 24, but it's fun. But again, it's not foundational. Uh, while Mad Love is somewhat problematic, Mad Love is a major text. Mad Love is the origin of Harley Quinn, one of the most important characters in comics of the past 30 years. So I think this goes in between Mad Love and uh, 66, The Lost Episode. Works for me. All right. Our new number 24. Fine showing for this book. Our next story is Last Ride. This is Justice League Last Ride, numbers one through seven. Written by Chip Zdarsky. Pencils by Miguel Mendoncia, uh, as well as Inks. Colors by Enrica Erin Angiolini. Uh, letters by And World Design. And edited by Katie Kubert and Michael McAllister. Cover dates are July 2021 to January of 2022. Sometime in the not-too-distant future, the Justice League is fragmented, the loss of one of its members driving a wedge between Batman and Superman. But one final mission is now calling the team to return to the location of that loss, and something dark is waiting for them there. Oh, I see what you did there. Uh, that's good. That's real good. Thank you. I liked this story a lot. And this read better in trade in one sitting than it did when I read it in singles. That might be one of the reasons why I liked it as much. I really appreciated reading it all in one sitting. The trade, as we are recording this episode, comes out next week. So it will have been out for a few weeks by the time uh, this episode drops. You would think that they would release the trade the week of the new Batman. But again, DC doesn't ask me uh, when they put stuff out. I got some mixed feelings on this one. I don't typically really get into uh, a new God's story. Uh, I don't typically like a lot of spacefaring adventure in my Batman and in my Justice League for that matter. I don't know if I buy the central premise. I don't know if I buy the idea that because we have a mission that goes, I won't say horribly wrong because the team saves the earth. So you got to keep that in mind. But because uh, Martian Manhunter chooses to sacrifice himself to save the entire planet, Superman blames Batman for this and proceeds to hold a grudge so hard that the league basically disbands on account of it. I just, I don't, I just, that doesn't feel genuine to me for Superman. It feels like Superman would, would honor that sacrifice, would honor that. Yeah, that was a terrible decision he had to make. And I will, I will cherish his memory because he made it of his free will and he saved the planet. I mean, so many of these heroes are always looking for a good death. And by God, Martian Manhunter had one. That being the central thing that drives the conflict in this book, it, fe it felt a little off kilter to me, as did the Batman who is in some moments just mean. But it had flow, right? Again, it's another one of those books that are absolutely competent in telling a story. So I got some personal quibbles, but it's in no means a bad book. There's stuff in here that speaks to me. Wally West as the Flash makes me happy. Wally is my Flash. I started reading the Flash right at, not quite at the beginning, but, and yes, this is a pun, but it came into my head unprompted as a uh -oh. pun. Uh-oh. Uh, I started reading The Flash just as Mark Wade hit his stride on that book, which, again, I didn't intend it as a pun, at least consciously, but that phrase immediately came into my head. Right when Wade, Wade's Flash became the, the central text of Wally West, right at Flash Zero, right leading into the story where Wally becomes the fastest Flash. Not quite probably the best story in that run. That's probably still The Return of Barry Allen from a little before. But Terminal Velocity is a great Flash story. But seeing Wally back as the Flash there with the rest of the league 
is something that speaks to me. I loved the interactions between Bruce and Jean when it was them and when it was them talking about making that sacrifice. I feel like Bruce and Jean get each other more than Clark and Jean do. And you could see that galling Superman. Because, you know, people are, well, they're the last survivors of their race and this and that. Yes, Clark is technically the last Kryptonian. Clark didn't grow up on Krypton. Clark is not really a stranger in a strange land. Clark grew up in Kansas. Clark is a farm boy. He's a Kansan bred, if not born. And he, as is often pointed out, is possibly the most human of superheroes, despite his powers. Jean lived a full life on Mars and watched his wife and his daughter die in front of him. If there's anyone who's going to understand Bruce's pain in seeing his parents murdered in front of him, it's going to be Jean. They experienced a tragedy that few others would. So I could absolutely understand Bruce respecting Jean's sacrifice in a way that I can see where you're coming from with Clark honoring Jean's sacrifice, but I think Clark does not have the same understanding of death that Bruce and Jean do on some level or another. I think that's a, that's a good point. Superman has experienced loss, but it's loss in a very disconnected way. It's, it's the same sort of loss in which, oh, you had a grandparent die when you were very young. You, you might be sad that you don't have a grandparent, but there was no emotional connection to that. There's, there's like, oh, I wish I had a people. I wish I had that shared history. I wish I had somebody I could go and talk to, but you don't feel that is an active ongoing loss. And I mean, Pa Kent died of a heart attack. It's tragic, it's painful, but it's not violent loss. I think a lot of people think about the destruction of Krypton to Superman as violent loss, but it's not. He didn't know Krypton. It's more for Supergirl, who was a teenager when Krypton was destroyed. She experiences that kind of loss. She and Jean would understand each other even better than Bruce and Jean would. But Clark doesn't feel Krypton in the same way that Jean feels Mars. I See, I never thought of Bruce as mean. I saw him as disconnected. I saw him as trying to play as right down the line, focused as he could, because he didn't want to deal with the emotions of having lost Jean. And the fact that Jean is haunting him in a way through his dreams is something that is affecting Bruce. I am trying to consult the text to figure out a moment where I thought that went a little too far. Uh... There is one good line while you look that up where Hal Jordan and Bruce are talking and Bruce and Hal who've never really gotten along And Hal says something to the effect of, you know, no one blames you, Bruce. And Bruce is like, one of you does. Also, I do like how Wonder Woman treats both Bruce and Clark as petulant children. She's constantly just telling them to sit down and do your homework properly. Because I think it's often forgotten that Diana is centuries old and that she is not going to take petulant men being petulant men at face value she's going to call them out and damn right okay so i think i think mean was was the wrong word but i know we have to get to a point where bruce can recognize oh that's john john's like coming into my brain he's trying to give me a message when he realizes that this dream is unusual and not just a dream Where Batman says 
he can control his dreams and he can control his sleep. And it was a little too cold, a little too analytical, a little too weird. It works for the overall story because it, that's a that's a story beat that we had to get into. But when you have a Batman who says, yeah, I can control my dreams. I'm like, eh, that's a bit much. I will absolutely agree with you on that. That's the Morrisonian bat god right there. I, I prefer my Batman, I think, as we've often said, a little more fallible, a little more human. I do like that we get a little bit of that at the end when Darkseid shows up and Bruce realizes, oh shit, we've been played this entire time. And Bruce the only, whole time. And Bruce only realizes it in retrospect and everything just drops into place. It's like, okay, that's cool. This wasn't Darkseid shows up and Batman's like, aha, I release the Orion seed 20 minutes ago and Orion is back and waiting for you. Ha ha. Cause there are people who would absolutely write Batman having played this whole thing all along, knowing that dark side was somewhere in Hal's brain. And it's like, Nope, Batman got taken in by this too. You know, actually, I don't think we've actually said what the actual plot is. Like I gave the emotional synopsis there. If you didn't give any of the real details that basically the league is here after having been separated because of the death of Martian Manhunter stopping Darkseid to bring in Lobo, who was responsible for the death of the new gods. And the United Planets wants to put him on trial. And the Green Lantern Corps wants him put on trial. But the, the Corps needs to protect him because they don't want vigilante justice. They basically don't want to see Lobo killed before he's put on trial. And so they give him over to the League who take him back to the one planet where they can, you know, control the environment theoretically, which is an abandoned apocalypse. And so it puts them back in this planet that is haunting them all. It makes for a really cool setting for this story. And it does give us the, the Martian Manhunter being, having been trapped, his consciousness being trapped in the planet all along that Darkseid has been inside Hal Jordan this whole time. The League is a very pared-down League. It's the Trinity, Wally West, Jon Stewart, and Hal Jordan. And that's it. And it's them with Lobo, who's written like a real bastard, which I like because I don't like anti-hero Lobo. I want villain Lobo because Lobo's not a good guy. Lobo shouldn't be a character that people look at and you're like, yeah, Lobo, he's great. No, him and Deathstroke are both villains. They should be villains. That is all. A lot of the last two or three issues are some beautiful fight scenes. The space battle with an armada led by Mongol and a ground battle with a group of Manhunters controlled by a hybrid of the cyborg Superman and Brainiac. Miguel Mendoncia, and pardon me if I'm mispronouncing the last name, it has some symbol to it that I don't quite know the proper way to pronounce it. And I try not to, you know, accent things because I don't want to seem like I'm doing a voice, but I think that that's somewhere near the proper pronunciation does a great job drawing this world. And his art is in style with someone like Derek Robertson, but is a little less putty-y, a little less exaggerated than Robertson's art is, but is still as expressive as Robertson's art is, which is good for a book that is so much grounded in these characters' emotions. I liked that fight scene there at the end when you bring in all of the heroes as constructs. Yeah, that was a fun, just crazy thing. Like this thing escalates to the point of it's everything and everybody all at once. And that was that was fun to see. That was fun. Zdarsky just playing with all of the toys that he could play with. When you've got you know Darkseid creating a construct army of parademons. And Hal Jordan creating a construct army of everyone who's ever been a member of the Justice League and them fighting. It's cool. And I think a lot of this story lives on the rule of cool. 
that, yeah, some of the behaviors might be a little stretched, but it is a cool story. And so I'm able to forgive a little bit more of that because it is something of an Elseworlds or a possible future. And it gives us cool character beats. It gives us an end where Bruce almost sacrifices himself to save Clark. But Clark, now that he's realized that he's been kind of a jerk this whole time, won't leave his friend's side, even though it's killing him too, because of the kryptonite knife that Bruce jumped in front of. I was talking to my partner, Laura, earlier today, and we were talking about Star Trek and about Wrath of Khan. And I am now and ever will be your friend. And that is the DC moment with Bruce, yes, (laughs) with Bruce being cradled in Clark's arms, despite both of them now dying. It is this testament to their friendship. And I did just hold uh, my (laughs) fingers up to my camera in the Vulcan salute. uh, Because this... Because this this is uh you know this is a visual format that we're playing in here. <laughs> but yeah, that that was a good touching moment there at the end. I it, it was a it was a much better emotional climax than the actual conclusion of the book, which the punchline was Justice League Universal, which I'm like, okay, that's not gonna be a book. That's not a tease to anything. It's a kind of a weak note to go out on. That and Dark Side's end is like, oh, we're lifting all of the boom nukes into space and then we're throwing dark side in and he's just going to get blown up with them the final 10 pages of the book are a bit rushed but everything leading up to it and those emotional beats are what made this story absolutely and unless you have anything else i think we're good that's all i've got so that means it's time to put justice league last ride on the big board I'm thinking middle, but kind of upper middle. So the middle now for us is quick math, 124 divided by 2, 62, 62. I'm thinking it's above, I think it's probably somewhere in the very high 40s, low 50s. Mm, Yeah, yeah. I think think i would probably reread this before despite it being shorter i'd reread batman the spirit at 49 yeah yeah i think that's fair it's not more fun than the doomsday book no again i'm kind of wondering if batman batman the spirit wound up that high because of the darwin cook absolutely Um, you know what i i think people will continue we'll give people reason to hate us again this week I think this might drop in in between Fear for Sale and Killing Joke. Because I would reread this before I reread Killing Joke. Okay. So is that above Untold Legend of the Batman of 53 or below? I think this is 53. This is in between Fear for Sale and Killing Joke. Because Fear for Sale is that great scarecrow story with, again, Bruce's greatest fear is the death of Jason Todd. I like that that story a lot. So I think this is below that and above Killing Joke. Okay, but I have Untold Legend of the Batman at 53. That's currently between Fear for Sale and Killing Joke. Do we have a discrepancy in, our, in the lists? We might. I will have to go back and look at last week's episode. I put whatever this is, this is going above Killing Joke. Okay, so for me, that would be 54. And for me, it is 53. I will have to go and... Oh, no. Somebody's got to check the tape. So there was a momentary pause. We went, we checked the tapes. And yes, this is now 53. Killing Joke is 54. And Untold Legend of the Batman is 55. But now that we've we've taken care of all of that, on to our last story of the night which is Batman Black and White, Volume 3. This is Batman Black and White, Volume 3, numbers 1 through 6, by various creative teams, edited by Ben Abernathy, Dave Wilgosh, and Andy Corey, cover dates of February to July of 2021. 
if you were here way back when in our first Batman black and white coverage for volume one, we're going to be covering this like that. We're not going to be doing a detailed dig through every one of these stories one by one because we'd be here all friggin' night. Uh, we're probably going to talk about a handful of the highlights, a handful of the lowlights, and we'll come up with some sort of aggregate ranking because this is five stories per issue over six issues. This is 38 page stories. It's a lot. We should probably start with the, with the Zdarsky story, shouldn't we? Since that's the reason for the season. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good place to start. Batman and Poison Ivy. With art by Nick Bradshaw, uh, The Green Deal. This is a, it's a, a neat story, but there are four types of stories that I find in a Batman black and white anthology. Okay, one, let's hear them. One is a story that uses the black and white for some actual reason in the story. We'll see a couple uh-huh. of those. One is a noir. One is one that, while it's not using the black and white for a story purpose, it has a vibe that is a black and white vibe. One is a perfectly good Batman short story that doesn't need to be in black and white. So it's there probably because the creators are somebody that DC editorial thought would sell a book or they wanted to get a Batman short story out of. And one is a not too great story. And there are some of all of those in this. This falls into group three for me. Yeah. This is a, a good, solid story, but it doesn't use the black and white for any particular reason. It's not particularly noir So it's just, hey, we want to get Chip Zdarsky and Nick Bradshaw to do a Batman story. So they do a perfectly serviceable Batman and Poison Ivy story. And th- this is one of the stories where I believe you, you can put together a perfectly colorable argument to say that it should be in color, right? Uh, Poison Ivy, uh, we have many, many pages of these beautiful plant spreads, the decomposing wanes. Seems like would be, it would be more interesting to look at if it was in color. I agree. I think that... There's a cool thing going on here with Ivy trying to get Bruce Wayne's help because Bruce Wayne is ecologically responsible. And then it turning out that, you know, her saying to Batman that she would do whatever she could to eventually be able to help him on his crusade. And he's like, yeah, I looked at all these plants. You were going to torture Bruce Wayne if he didn't say yes. So I don't necessarily buy it and yeah and not just torture but uh, use him as a zombie so you weren't gonna take no for an answer i think it was a cool note for the ivy story but i agree this is one that probably would have been better in color moving to i want to say the opposite uh, the stories that use black and white the best is a story in issue two all cats are gray by sophie campbell it is a mostly, if not completely, silent story. It's a Batman-Catwoman story, and it's set against a snowy backdrop. So it's Catwoman in a black costume and Batman chasing her and then switching into a white costume so she blends into the snow. It's smart. It's fun. It's got a great little bunch of beats between Bruce and Selina playing with each other. And it uses the black and white to the best effect. We covered these in uh, in the print column, the second second entry on the list that we have already talked about before. And I think I don't really believe my thoughts uh, have changed on this volume. Although I will say I've softened on the creative teams. I've one of my biggest complaints reading it the first time was quite a few artists getting their first turn as writers. And I thought that was, you know, looking at volume one and seeing that amazing list of of people, 
it wasn't quite up to that standard. And that's certainly still there. But, you know, this was this was a good roster of talent. Scott Snyder contributed the last story, which I'm sure was on purpose. Uh, as we said, Zdarsky is kind of an, an up and comer uh, in the world of D.C. Uh, G. Willow Wilson, Joshua Williamson, other big name writers. Uh, the uh, Well, John Ridley. I mean, while still early-ish, I mean, he's a pretty big name outside of comics. We got uh, Tom oh, King. Gillen, Kieran Gillen, one of the best stories in here. Mariko Tamaki has a, a, a good one as well. Brandon Thomas, better known for his indie work, but still. And John Arcudi, who's a workhorse. He's one of those guys who's been at it forever. Third. 30-ish year career at this point, at least. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I have, I've grown to appreciate the talent roster a little bit more. You liked that story from Sophie Campbell. One of my favorites, having pointed this out in the print column and still my favorite, the newspaper strip. Oh yeah, the David Aha oh. newspaper strip one. Definitely. Oh yeah. Give, give me a whole book of that, man. I would just, I would enjoy the shit out of that. Yeah. I, I don't know if AHA's written a lot before this, but th- that one hits all of those, those top line notes. This is one that uses black and white because it's like a newspaper strip and it's formalistically interesting. Yeah. It's everything you want from a black and white, which is why I like the Catwoman one as well. And the same for the choose your own adventure style one from Kieran Gillen. Oh, fuck, that was good. The riddle is phenomenal. I think we can agree. Those are probably the top three in this collection. The the Snyder one is excellent as well. A, A story of the photographer who took the first photo of Batman and it, it being about his life. And I think that one is very poignant. And of course, a lot of people can take or leave JRJR. So eh, eh. his faces, man, they're real weird, real weird. Yeah. Another one that art wise is astounding is check. Oh, no, sorry. I was about to call it checkmate, but that's the Daniel Warren Johnson one, which is still great, but it was not the one I was thinking of. The one I was thinking opening moves, the Nick Darrington story from the last issue where Darrington colors that and wow, are his colors lush. This chessmen story, it's just gorgeous to look at. I also really like the opening story of issue six, the second signal from Brandon Thomas and Carrie Randolph about a couple of kids from the hill who build a bat signal because people are disappearing on the hill and the cops don't care and Batman never comes down to the hill and it winds up being mad hatter kidnapping people for his, you know, schemes that he doesn't think anybody's going to care about. It doesn't necessarily need the black and white treatment, but you could argue there is a certain thematicness to the black and white morality stuff that you can play with there, but it's just a great story and it does a great job of calling out, and I think I said this in the print column, calling out the social inequality that Batman doesn't always address without going that, well, Bruce Wayne could just, you know, pay for all the problems to go away, which is such a bad faith argument. But this actually is a good argument for like, Bruce needs to spend more time in underserved communities as Batman because they're underserved by the police. This is where Batman is needed. And this, the, this idea goes back to um, cheer in that Bruce Wayne by himself can't solve every problem, but Batman is very willing to use his money to solve problems. You know, he sets up, oh, I forget the kid. What's Tyler. the kid's name? Yeah, he Tyler. sets up Tyler's family, you know, gets mom on the road to recovery, pays for, I think, housing and treatment and all that kind of stuff. Batman is not a cheapskate. Bruce Wayne is not a cheapskate. He uses his money for good. He just can't use all of those billions of dollars to save every problem in Gotham. If he could do it, he would. Absolutely. Metamorphosis from G. Willow Wilson and Greg Smallwood in issue one is another one that is gorgeous. Greg Smallwood, who 
is now working on Human Target with Tom King, probably the best thing Tom King has done since Mr. Miracle. And it's beautiful. And it's another noir. It's another one that works because it's a noir. Although I had a couple of sour notes in that one. Um, but you finish your point and I'll, I'll make mine. Go for it. Because I think I know we might be going somewhere with the, the Stockholm Syndrome stuff that goes yeah, on. Yeah, little... yeah. That felt totally just out of left field. Batman is not going to just, I think, randomly speculate on Stockholm Syndrome. And at the end, when the, uh, I quote, unquote, kidnap victim says something like it was the animal i was i was into like that was just that was weird and it is written by a woman so that that comes off a little better but if a guy wrote that we'd say that that was sleazy and gross and it still reads as sleazy and gross so uh weigh that as you will dear listeners although i think the art prize for the entire series goes to weight from J.H. Williams, because, go oh, J.H. Williams. Especially because this is one of these stories that shows what a stylistic chameleon Williams can be. He matches all of these styles of all of these artists from all of these past stories. And he's not just dropping in panels. He's mimicking those styles for those stories. One that I really liked tom king's story and it is it's his nine panel grid Uh, i have a note here tom king the formalist yeah he uh he loves it he really does but it's it's not a story that needs the black and white but the art is still beautiful in it yes yes and and the story is is great too of batman just being able while he can't save someone, he can comfort them. He can be there for them at the end. And I think that that's a, that's a good note. King gets that every now and then. He does it in another story. We'll eventually cover uh, his Batman Annual 4 from that volume. But I did really like Daniel Warren Johnson's Checkmate. I'm a, I like Daniel Warren Johnson a lot. And it's a very cool looking story. And it's about you know, Bruce and Alfred and chess and how that affects his time as Batman. I went back and I, I kind of looked back at our reviews, the final story in issue five, the man who flies was the Nightwing story. I remember us going back and forth on this, on the column. And I, while I agree with you back then, I wonder how you feel now. It is a bit wordy and a bit all over the place as a story goes. But Jamal Campbell is an incredible artist and his stuff has so such a feel of motion to it. He was born to draw Dick Grayson. I could have been in a bad mood. Okay. I can't remember exactly what you said, but I remember you having some problems with the the writing of it. And I, I can see them now that it is a bit, you know, there's, a lot of, you know, Dick talking about his past while investigating a case, and it could have been easier if it was one or the other, but it's so good looking. That it is. And just going back to the J.H. Williams, I thought you would have had a problem with those damned pearls as being a motif, but it is somewhat appropriate in a Batman black and white. Yes, exactly. I'm willing to forgive it for its use stylistically. Just using it in the flashbacks is what I'm so sick of. I'm so sick of every flashback focusing on the pearls. Here, it's Williams doing something artistic with the pearls. Uh, And being able to match so many other styles. Like, it's just one of those situations where somebody's so talented, you're like, God damn it, fuck you. Fuck you for being so good. Yeah, we've talked about Williams on the show, and I'll talk about one of my favorite artists, Kelly Jones. Uh, it does not do it for me here. No. Kind, kind of a miss. Yeah, it, it was a really busy story. The story itself was only okay. This sort of zombie Batman with Zatanna and the demon. And it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's okay at best. Did like uh, Signals from Lee Weeks, a, another noir, a Jim Gordon noir. Oh, that, that was a good one too that had that emotional resolution there at the end. Yes. 
unless there's any others that are really going to jump out at you, I think those are my highlights. I don't know if I have any particular, none of, none of these were offensive. Yeah. That's some of those early ones from the first volume. Yeah. That's, that's the point that I was going to make. And I think that that is obviously a changing environment. We don't have any white guys from middle America trying to write inner city gang violence. We don't have any just brutal nihilism from the the story from that Killing Joke uh, deluxe volume. Bollard? Is that its uh, fellow's Boland. name? Boland. Boland. Yeah, that story was awful. So, yeah, I, I think there is... I, I don't want to say that the highs are as high as what we have in the volume one, but the creativity, man, it's it's here right with the the choose your own adventure the newspaper strip i don't know if we had anything that fancy in the first volume but we we had admittedly some some legendary talent in that too some of those are just really memorable stories and really testaments to who batman is i don't know if there's any here that are as true to Batman as a character that are like, oh, wow, I could give anybody one of these eight pages and they would know who Batman is after reading these eight pages. No. And for the uh, the listeners, we currently have the first volume at number nine. So that it was a really, really good run, even with some stories that uh, are just terrible. Yeah. Yeah, there aren't. Uh, we will someday get to volume two and then we're going to have to do probably treat Batman black and white was backups in Gotham Knights for a bunch of years. So those don't technically get a volume number because they weren't standalone because volume one was the first miniseries. Volume two was the second volume three is the third. If you look at them in trade, it's actually Volume one is volume one. Volumes two and three are the collected Gotham Knights shorts. Volume four is the second miniseries. Volume five is the third miniseries. Ah, I was quite confused in your introduction, but I wasn't going to correct you on it. That This would be publication volume three, but collection volume five. It's weird, but that's why. And I, I use publication volumes for my synopses. And let's not even get started on a Legends of the Dark Knight conversation. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I think that's that's about what we have here. Yeah. So that means it's time to put Batman Black and White, apparently volume three on the big board. This is, again, this is tricky. We had, a, you know, after last week, we have, this is a good week after the past couple of weeks that have had some, some less good material. I mean... Week four, uh, back in a couple weeks ago, the nightfall week was pretty good, but the weeks last week and the week before that were less good. The poison ivy week and the <laughs> the Joker weeks were less less good. Yeah, yeah. Any any week where we got to read Killing Joke is not a good week. I think for the reasons that we've talked about with with the story being very essential to Jason Todd, I don't think we can go higher than twenty four. No, no. I think we're probably in the 30s, 40s area. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at Vengeance of Bane. That seems like a good spot at 35 to just kind of start the discussion. Yeah, I, I'd go a little bit lower, but not much. What about, okay, 30, the, the 37 to 39 stretch. You got Cry for Blood, Batman and Robin and Howard, and Birth of the Demon. I think it falls somewhere in there. Ah, uh, hmm. I, I might give somebody Batman and Robin and Howard before I'd give them this. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking in between Batman and Robin and Howard and Birth of the Demon. So making it the new 39. All right, let's do it. And that does it for tonight. Next week... Well, no one has angrily shouted his name in a movie, and we've said a lot about him before, some of it good, some of it bad. So we thought we'd dig into three stories about the father of the bat, 
Thomas Wayne. Uh, <laughs> we'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. June, it's a mouthful. Joshua Wheel, Abigail Hartbaum. <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Kyle Still, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.